Two balls and two strikes in the pitch. Mm. And a called strike three. It's a career high 11 strikeouts for Matt Strom. An excellent five innings. He's allowed just the two run home run to CJ Crone. And that is basically it. The biggest epiphany would probably have came in Tommy John of like how mm. much work this is. There's some guys that can roll out of bed and go three for four and sure there's other guys that can roll out of bed and throw seven innings and punch out 10 like it, it's it's so individualized and I think that was the biggest thing I had for me was like okay I look around the room and it's I'm not I'm not here on natural ability I'm here on work if you had the chance to have a beer with your favorite baseball player what would you talk about would you ask the same tired questions like every reporter after the game how did you feel? What was going through your mind? Yada, yada, yada. Probably not. It's time you hear the stories that these players have never told. This is the Setup Man Podcast, where we have conversations that every fan wants to hear and the stories that every player and coach deserve to share. Let's get started. Here we go. We have commenced the Setup Man podcast. This is one of our first two interviews that we're releasing at the same time. This is with Matt Strom. The other one, in case you missed it, World Series MVP Troy Gloss. You're not going to want to miss that one. Go check it out after you listen to Matt Strom. I got a chance to sit down with Troy in person, Matt, over webcam. But Matt is a really cool story, one of adversity, one of overcoming injuries. But before we get into that, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Please, as we get started with this, it is so crucial that we get as much engagement as we can getting started off with a new YouTube channel with a new podcast. So if you're on a podcast right now, go ahead and leave a five-star review. If you're on the YouTube channel, please subscribe, hit that notification bell, comment on the video, just get engaged. Tell me what you like about the interview. Tell me what you don't like about the interview. Tell me everything that you remember when it comes to Matt Strom or maybe your top Matt Strom moment. If you're a Phillies fan or a Padres fan or a Red Sox fan, he's played for you. Uh, the Royals, he also started with. You're also going to want to go to setupman.net and subscribe to our list. Why? Because that's the only place we're going to be doing giveaways. Whether that's going to be merchandise or swag, just like the shirt that I'm wearing here with the Setup Man. We also have a couple cool sponsors that are coming up that are going to have some giveaways for you. And also, as I meet more players and coaches and figures in person... I'm going to ask them to sign a baseball or to sign a shirt or to sign something that I can give away to you, my listener. So the only way that you're going to know about that is if you actually sign up on our list on setupman.net. Go check it out. Now, Matt Strom, let's get to it. How do we know each other? We actually met each other back in, I want to say it was 2011, 2010, 2011, at the Juco World Series in Grand Junction, Colorado. At the time, I was a sports anchor, and Matt was playing for Neo Show. And I got to know Matt a little bit. I got to know his coach, Steve Murray, a lot. We mentioned him a couple times in this interview. But Matt was really one of those guys that you were like, okay, I see a little bit of potential here. He was a number one starter for them, and he was getting some looks. But now Matt has really become one of the top left-handed relievers and swingmen in the game. But Matt's story is not one of just going straight to the top. It is definitely one of adversity. And so I'm really excited for you to hear this today, especially like if you're listening, maybe you've got a, a five-year-old son, a 10-year-old son, a 12-year-old son who wants to go and play Major League Baseball. I really would encourage you to sit down and listen to this interview with Matt because he talks about a lot of that, and, and especially when you can show your son or your daughter or whoever that is, someone who didn't have an easy path or didn't have that straight-to-the-top path with the majors, it shows an opportunity for them to know that a little bit of hard work and getting through adversity can go a long way. So make sure you also, by the way, check out Matt's YouTube channel, Strom's Stadium Pools, where he actually goes and pulls baseball cards and opens baseball packs right in front of you on YouTube. And uh, he's a huge baseball card collector, which is exactly where we're going to start on this interview. So let's get to it with Matt Strom. Man, it's it's good to see you, brother. It's been about 11 years since our, our days of meeting back in Grand Junction, good old Grand Junction. But uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> now you're with the <laughs> Phillies and... You're uh, gracious enough to hang out with us while you're in Pittsburgh with your family too. And, you know, one thing that a lot of people uh, may or may not know about you is that uh, like me, you are a, a big collector of, of baseball cards. And I just got to ask you, you know, you've opened up a lot of cards. You got your own YouTube yeah. channel with the uh, Strom Stadium pools, but what is the best card that you've ever pulled? The best I've ever pulled? Um, probably the, okay. So 
my favorite pull would definitely be the super factor I hit of Pete Alonzo. But nice. my most valuable pull is probably a Bobby Witt Jr. Sapphire Auto numbered to five. Um, Ooh. Yeah, my brother and I last year, we bought 12 boxes off some guys and they all arrived at once. And I told him he could pick one and open it. And that was the one he picked and opened it. And I was like, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna take that one back and you can have the other 11 boxes and we'll call it even. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, yeah. Random question, is your brother still a master with the Rubik's Cube? Yes, yeah. You give him that thing, he'll put it, he'll put it together for you. So he can, <laughs> I remember he can that. He'll do that. When he was with Cowley, I remember him doing that in the bus and my mind just being blown. Yeah, uh, that's his, uh, that's, he, he definitely, that's his little, uh, I guess, not quite a bar trick, but it's <laughs> not, not something you'd expect out of the kid and then he just yeah. gets it done. So that's, that's awesome, man. Uh, what, what do you, you know, just really quick before we get into everything, I'm just curious, uh, were, were you a card collector before, you know, the big wave hit in 2020 and no one had anything to do with their lives or were you uh, starting right around that time too? So I would say it was probably, it was after the 2018 season. Okay. Um, my brother was living with me in the off season. And again, my brother is an entrepreneur. He loves to loves to buy things and flip them and do all that. And he kind of got into the rabbit hole with cards doing that in 18 or 19. And uh, one day back when I was coming home from workouts, I stopped at a Target. My wife had a honey-do list for me to pick up and I stopped, grabbed some things. And I walked by the card aisle and I was like, hmm, let's grab some, let's try a box or two. And must have been 19 because that box I brought home, I hit a Tatis to 99 on a Topps Chrome rookie card. Oh, yeah. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I, ever <laughs> since then, I was hooked and uh, been doing it ever since. But I, I mean, I collected like all other kids did when I was younger. Kind of got the the full sets. Um, I collected local guys like Rick Helling, Darren Erstead, Chris Coast. Nice. Um, and then, you know, it just, it, it kind of grew. And then once the pandemic hit, it was, I mean, again, too, when, when I started in the big leagues, I, I wanted to get like a collection of memorabilia from guys. But after my first year, I had like four jerseys, three or four bats and like a dozen baseball sign. And it's like, wow, this is going to be a pain in the butt to display one day because it's, <laughs> it's so much. And it's like, I'm going to need a 10,000 square foot warehouse just to, if I, if I play as long as I want, like I'm, I'm going to collect a lot. And then once I got into the cards, I was like, you know what, this would be way easier to just have guys sign cards and collect cards. You can put them in binders and have hundreds of cards in a little booklet and it's, it's way easier to display. And I, I enjoy the cards. So yeah. it makes it a lot it's, easier. It's addicting too. you, you oh, yeah. get that box with a hundred cards or more and you're wondering what in the world is going to come out of there. I, I remember one time when I was a kid, my mom gave me $40 and said, uh, give it to the, card store credit so that you can like buy a pack a day for like the next month yeah and i went in and i bought one and i pulled something good and i was like yeah let's just get another yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I got home my mom was like you spent the full 40 dollars." i was like i'm sorry yeah. it's addicting i was like 12 yeah. years old you can't give me that, that kind of trust <laughs> exactly i mean that's i've tried to i try collect a box too so like whatever yeah. i open oh, yeah. if i order a case i'll have like eight boxes in a case i'll open seven of them and try keep one yeah and it's like that one just sits there on the on the shelf staring at me like hey there was nothing awesome. in those other seven that means there's something in yeah. me it's yeah. like hmm, should i open it <laughs> so it's it's uh it's fun and again it just it makes you feel like a kid and it it's heck yeah like, yeah it's addicting so cool man well you know speaking of a kid let's go back to when you were a kid growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, West Fargo, uh, West we're Fargo, our own city. We're our own city. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. I, I didn't know there was a difference. <laughs> is, is it a suburb or where, where is West Fargo compared to Fargo? Yeah, we're right outside of Fargo. So okay. you have, you have Fargo and Moorhead to the east of us and they call it the FM area, Fargo Moorhead area. And then uh, okay. West Fargo, I mean, us West Fargoans take our, take our pride in being, from West Fargo and not Fargo. So I was going to say it's, you, it's you right. It's right. Right away. Yeah. 
It's yeah. like being uh, North Chicago or South Chicago. There's there's a big yeah. difference, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so playing baseball though, and like one of the, I've never been to North Dakota, but I gotta yeah. imagine one of the coldest places in the world. Like, talk to me about growing up and playing baseball uh, in North Dakota. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was definitely it was definitely different than what those those Southern kids get to experience. Um, I remember my senior year, it was Cinco de Mayo, and we got snowed out. So on May 5th, we got snowed out my senior year, um, you know, but it, it, it's again, I didn't know any different. It's what I what I grew up in. And, you know, a lot of a lot of baseball was played inside the gym. And, uh, you know, I think I don't think I ever had a baseball tryout outside. I think mm-hmm. all of our tryouts were always inside. Um, <clears throat> and then after you made the team, you spent the next four days shoveling the field or something pumping the water off the the field and trying trying to get it ready to play but uh yeah and it wasn't it wasn't ideal but like i said my dad and mom were always up to drive somewhere to play ball or just take us to the gym and throw us bp and do that so it was uh definitely the odds were against me but it was a passion and something i dreamed of and stuck with it so was was it a passion and and a dream for you and your brother? And were you both kind of uh, each other's number one baseball, you know, teammate or person to ask to play catch? Or did you have other guys that you were uh, practicing with? Yeah, no, I mean, my brother and I played a lot of baseball in the front yard. Um, you probably still go see the the uh, replaced grass in the batter's box at my parents' house that mom constantly was frustrated with us standing in the same spot, hitting baseballs and just making our own batter's box in our front yard. So <laughs> that was, that was pretty good. But uh, no, I mean, I, my brother grew up uh, as the bat boy on my team. He's five years younger than me. And, um, you know, he's always been able to play at my ability, even when he was seven, eight years old. So I always had a catch partner. I always had someone to throw BP or, I mean, hit ground balls or whatever. So it was uh it was nice and uh yeah it was again we didn't have much time so we made the most of it cool uh high school i i looked this up i want you to confirm for me you considered yourself the third best pitcher on your high school team yeah um that's that's crazy we had we had a kid by the name of tanner doll he was a year, year younger than me and uh he was he was always good ever since he was 11 years old he was one of the better pitchers in the state for west fargo he's again a year year under me and then we had uh bryce jorgensen and jacob Kiefer, who both threw really hard they just i mean really hard for north dakota i should say <laughs> so <clears throat> i was always the the third or fourth guy and i would throw on the weekends in the third or fourth game depending if if we needed it and uh I also was kind of like, I, I always threw strikes. That was my big thing. So <clears throat> whenever a game got out of hand or whatever, if we weren't pitching well, I would come in and fill it up. Yeah. All right. So talk to me about the journey from there, from high school to college and then to the pros. Was getting to the pros something that uh, was an expectation, not just for yourself, but other people around you? Were you uh, a diamond in the rough? Like, t- talk to me about just the abilities as you were growing up. Yeah, I mean, um, I would say from high school to college, the only people that probably believed what I wanted to do were myself and my parents. Mm. Um, you know, I, I again, I didn't throw hard. I didn't, I didn't, I never, in high school, I never played catch to throw hard if that makes sense so like i would always play catch to warm up and then go take in and out and do all that but then once i got to college and it was like hey you're just a pitcher my catch was my work so i could actually Mm -hmm. like i would spend 15 20 minutes in my catch program to build my arm strength and that that helped me a lot um i graduated high school probably throwing 78 to 80 miles an hour um showed up to neosho and uh 2000 that would have been the fall of 10 and i was probably like 81 83 um coach murray even sat me down and asked me if i was wasting mine and my parents time uh didn't didn't (laughs) think i was sounds like something he would say (laughs) yeah um i I remember him asking the uh the pitching coach at the time the one that recruited me 
he asked him if he was drunk when he recruited me. And I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. So, uh, <laughs> you know, definitely, definitely was a, an uphill climb. And again, I don't think anyone really believed I, I could do it until probably my sophomore year of college when I got up to 90 miles an hour as a lefty. And even that, it was probably like people were like, I oh, might play pro ball, but I don't mm. know if he's got it to be a big leaguer. And, uh, you know, it was, again, even the, the injuries that I've had, like they were a little blessing in disguise with my development. Um, you know, I didn't throw much, obviously, growing up in North Dakota, I didn't throw much every year. Then when I went to college, my freshman year, I threw, I think, like 75 or 80 innings, which was the most I'd ever thrown in a year. And then the next year I threw 100 in college and then I think like 30-something in pro ball. And then that's when I blew out my elbow. Mm. And uh, that, like I said, that that was a little blessing in disguise of understanding the workload in professional baseball versus college baseball. In college baseball, you're throwing once a week. In professional baseball, it's once every five days. Or as a reliever, it's every other, every third day kind of thing. And uh, you know, just going through the the rehab process, learning how to how much your body, like taking care of your body, means for yeah. this profession. And that was that was something that. I'm I'm glad I went through so early in my career. Even though you were doing well in college, you still weren't sure you were going to go pro. But then after your last year at Neosho, which was a stellar year, you get not only recruited to play D1 baseball, but then you get drafted. So was getting drafted kind of a shock to you? Because uh, it sounded like you weren't really expecting that. Um, Not so much my sophomore year. I would say once – so we have the the sophomore showcase in the Jayhawk conference every year. Okay. And uh, all the way up to that, it was kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to get drafted, but I'm, I got all these D1 offers. I'm going to go D1. And my whole goal of junior college was I wanted to start pro ball. I wanted to get into pro ball and just start it. Okay. And uh, after my sophomore showcase, like leading up to all of that was like, it was all just college scouts at all of our practices and everything. And then I throw in the sophomore or in the sophomore showcase. And then uh, the NCAA has that like dead period where like there can't be recruiting or anything. Right. So I throw in the showcase, come back to Chanute. And then I believe it was like, that was on a weekend. <clears throat> and then we would scrimmage Thursday, Friday. And I believe I was throwing that Friday. And when I showed up that Friday, so I actually had a test that day, Friday morning, and I stayed up all Thursday night studying for it because I was like, in my head, I was like, it's the dead week. There will be no scouts here. Like, it, it is what it is. Like, I can I can throw dead tired tomorrow. It is what it is. I need, to, I need to get a good grade on this test. So I stayed up all night studying for the test, rolled right into my test at 8, at 8 a.m., went back to the dorm after my test and took a little nap, and then I wake up, and I'm like, all right, I got to pitch in like an hour. So I wake up, and I drive to the stadium, and as I'm getting to the stadium, I was one of the guys that got there earlier, especially the day I started. And I get there, and there's like eight cars parked in the parking lot. I'm like, what the heck? And I get down into the dugout, and Coach Murray's there with a big big grin on his face. And he's like, hey, you're going to make us some money today. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, I got eight, eight pro scouts here. I'm like, what? You're working off so, an hour of sleep, yeah. basically. Yeah, I went straight panic mode and oh, got no. into my – got into my routine and I ended up pitching really well. Um, nice. Again, it was just an inner squad, but I mean, my velo was up there and everything went good. And after that day, it was kind of like, okay, I got a really good shot of being drafted and seeing what happens. And then that was when major league baseball changed their, their whole draft process to the, to the slots and all this. And nobody knew what was going to happen. I had scouts telling me, Oh, if this was last year, you would, you'd be drafted here and get X amount, but now mm. you're only going to get a fifth of that because of all the slots and all this. And at the time I was like, I don't care. I just want the chance and I want to go play. And wow. Kansas City Royals gave it to me. So, so you get drafted, but you also got recruited to D one uh, for Nebraska. It sounds like it wasn't much of a decision. A lot of, I feel like a lot of athletes at that point, especially I think it was the 21st round are kind of, Wayne, like, do I go for another year and yeah. maybe try to increase my draft stock? But you were like, let's just go. Yeah, no. So, yeah, the whole recruiting process of Division One was wild for me. Um, Oklahoma was my dream school since I was 10. Um, I mean, my 
childhood room was painted crimson and cream had a big OU flag in it um and I actually I received a scholarship from them but uh the the coach that recruited me there about two weeks before signing uh, national signing day he took a new job at Texas Tech coach Tadlock and uh that kind of threw a wrench in things for me and I was like well really don't want to go there without knowing what pitching coach is going to be there, blah, blah, blah. So then it came down to uh, Mississippi state or Oklahoma state for me. And the, those were going to be one of the two decisions. And between my parents and I, I chose Mississippi state. The very next day, Nebraska announced Darren Erstead as their head coach. Oh, nice. Darren Erstead is a North Dakota native, my childhood hero. And, uh, gave me a call and offered me a full ride and made it pretty easy to say going to Nebraska. So that was, that was that. Yeah. Uh, but, but you still didn't go to Nebraska. You ended up going to the, to the draft. So was that tough yeah. to turn down your childhood hero? <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was an interesting phone call for sure. Um, Tell me about that. He definitely. Yeah. So um, I was one of the first guys he recruited obviously in his job okay. and uh um, going into the draft, I had told him I had X amount of dollars I wanted, and that's what it was going to take for me to not go to Nebraska. And then the, I, I, I told him a dollar amount in a round. I was like, they told me they're going to take me in the 15th round and give me X amount of dollars. And if they do that, I'm going, he's like, all right. And then after the 15th round, they didn't take me. And I think it was like in the 18th or 19th, he called me and I was, I was, furious with the Royals at the time because it was like uh, four rounds have gone by when you said yeah. you were going to draft me and you hadn't. And then Ersted called me and I was like, yeah, it is what it is. I'm coming to school, whatever. And then those later rounds are only like a minute and a half a piece. And then it couldn't have been like six minutes later, the Royals drafted me in the 21st and ended up giving me the money we that we agreed upon. And so I was like, dang, I got to call this guy back and tell him I'm not coming. <laughs> <laughs> so so it was uh it was a whirlwind of 10 minutes but uh in the end looking back i'm glad i did what i did and it, it worked out how did he react yeah like i said he was he was a little furious he was a little mad at first but uh it was pretty funny about five or five years later it was nebraska night at the k and uh darren said came and threw out the first pitch and i that was the first time I'd spoken to him since the phone call and shook my hand. He goes, Hey, just so you know, you'd have been here a year earlier if you'd have came to Nebraska. Just, laugh, so <laughs> just, just a little jab to stick it to you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> well, you know, one, you know, though, I, I look at your journey there and, and you have Tommy John the year after yep. you get drafted. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that's almost like, Hey, I'm glad I yeah. went draft because had you had to go, through Tommy John and back to college, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of think of some scouts would probably have been like, eh, can this guy actually make a full recovery? 100%. Yeah, I would have probably ended up going back for my senior year and being a senior sign if uh, if everything would have happened that way. But, uh, again, that's another blessing in disguise of signing and just going right into it. Um, yeah, I didn't throw much for the Royals before I needed that, so they really didn't have a look at me. And then once I came back from Tommy John, I was a completely different pitcher. What do you mean? What was the difference? Um, I mean, I went from uh, 91, 93 mile an hour lefty to 95 to 98. Um, wow. I, I, it, I, a lot of guys will say like, oh, I had Tommy John and I started throwing harder. It's like you, again, I, when I said earlier, I learned a lot of, uh, about myself in the rehab process and about the game of baseball and how much it takes for your body to be ready to do this. And uh, that's where, I, I mean, I had 16 months to figure out my body. It was the best best shape I've been in and strongest I've ever been. And like I said, learned a lot and it, it, it definitely benefited me. So describe that process of going through Tommy John and the recovery, because just like you said, especially a lot of fans that hear about guys going through Tommy John, it's almost like today they expect someone to come back stronger. Is it yep. because of the surgery? Is it because of the routine? Walk me through that process. Yeah, I mean, the 
the science behind the surgery obviously states that like your UCL once they reconstruct it is three times stronger than what mm. you originally had. So people look at that and like, oh, you're automatically going to throw harder. Well, just because your ligaments or tendons or can take more doesn't mean your body is able to produce what it what it takes to do more. If that makes sense. Mm. So it's definitely it's definitely all the the exercises and rehab that you go through. It's a ton. Um, the, the amount of throwing you do in the rehab process of Tommy John is like, you got to think you have a brand new ligament in there and you have to stress it and do all that stuff to get it back to what, what you were. So I have a brand new ligament. I'm 24 years old. I've been throwing on the other one for 24 years, stretching it out, doing what I need. And it's like all this throwing, that's the most throwing I've ever done in a year was definitely my rehab throwing program. Mm. Um, so just the amount of throwing, the amount of exercises you do, I just think it's, it's inevitable that most guys are going to come back throwing harder. Um, especially the guys that are in like the, the low to mid nineties, obviously you have guys throwing a hundred. It's hard to come back throwing 102, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was, uh, it was a great learning process. And I, again, I just, I learned so much about my body and pitching mechanics that I had no idea what I was doing before. And it's, it, it was, it was, it was good for me. So when you came back and you were stronger, were you getting the fast track to the majors from there or was it still kind of a longer road? Yeah. So it was definitely a longer road. Um, most guys take 12 to 14 months with their first Tommy John to come back. I was uh, 16 months. I had a, mm. a couple setbacks in my rehab process and it took me 16 months. Um, again, the timing of my surgery actually was to my benefit with the rule five draft and all that. By the time I came back, um, I had one year that I pitched a full year and then the team had to make a decision on me, whether they wanted to protect me or not. And again, I was a lefty that was throwing 97. So in the minor leagues back then, that wasn't very normal or usual. And, uh, so it was, uh, like I said, again, another blessing in disguise, the timing of my surgery and my rehab that after I pitched that one full year, that's really all the Royals had to look at me was what they drafted. And then I rehabbed all the way up until the year I pitched. And then it was like, hey, it's time to make a decision on this kid. And uh, yeah, they ended up protecting me. And from there, I would say it was, it wasn't really a fast track. It was just, um, I, I was set up real, real well to, to make my debut being on the roster, being left-handed, it kind of all just went my way. Walk me through the debut, uh, call sure. up and, and debut on the same day. What do you remember about that day? Um, so the call up was, was weird. So the night before I was in double a, I pitched out of the bullpen. They had just moved me to the bullpen probably like three weeks before because of my inning limit. I would okay. again come the the first full year off Tommy John. I didn't start. I was kind of like a piggyback guy out of the bullpen. And then after they protected me, they put me as a starter in Double A. Reached my inning limits. Got moved to the bullpen. It was probably like my fifth or sixth outing out of the bullpen in Double A. After the game, I get called in the manager's office, and he's like, "Hey, calling you up to Triple A tomorrow morning. The club will come get you." We were in uh, Springfield. He's like, Clubby will come get you in Springfield. He'll drive you back to Springdale. You can grab your, your stuff in your locker, get your car, and drive off to Omaha. I was like, all right. So the next morning I woke up, get in the car with the Clubby, and we're driving. It was probably like an hour and 45-minute drive. We probably got like an hour into it, and Vance Wilson, the double-A manager, called me, and he's like, hey, where you at? I said, I don't know. We're probably like 30 minutes from the, the park. I'm going to grab my stuff and go. And he's like, well – once you get to the park, I just need you to stay there until I call you back. Like, just sit there and wait, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'll give you a call. He's like, that's all I can tell you now. I'm like, all right. Super cryptic. And at this time, it was like July 28th or 9th. So I'm sitting here, and I was the Royals' number one prospect, and there's a bunch of talk if the Royals were going to go for it one more time, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, dang, they just traded me. Like, I'm gone. And so I sat there for 12 hours. <clears throat> he didn't call me until after their game in double A. And he was like, hey, you're taking a flight to Arlington tomorrow. I wish I could tell you you're called up, but it's not for sure. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, 
someone's having an MRI in the morning and if the MRI comes back that they need to go to the IL, you'll be active. But if they don't need to go to the IL, they're going to fly to Omaha. I was like, all right. So it's like messing with your emotions majorly. Yeah. So <laughs> wow. Get to, get to Arlington. It was their, their getaway day. Um, game was at noon. I believe, I think it was like a 1235 start. Um, I, I had just told my parents and my wife, I was like, yo, they're, one game in Arlington and then they go to Tampa. I was like, why don't you guys just fly to Tampa and meet me there? Like the odds I pitch are very low. Blah, blah, blah. They're like, all right. So they all flew to Ar- or to Tampa as I was in Arlington. And uh, I'm sitting there at, it's like 11 o'clock. And I was told I couldn't get dressed because it wasn't for sure. So I'm sitting in the locker room in my, button up dress shoe, shoes everything just sitting there and dave island the pitching coach walks by me i think it was like 1105 and he's like hey you gonna play catch before the game and i go uh <laughs> am i active like yeah, yeah i would love to but am i active and he's like uh skip hasn't talked to you yet and i was like no oh gosh and I was like and then like he's like hold on and like a minute later he comes back he's like hey skip needs to see you and i walk into skip's office he's like hey uh we're gonna activate you um go do what you need and uh, we'll see you at 1230. I was like, all right. So ran out, ran out and played catch in, uh, in the dang near, not a full stadium, but all the fans were pouring in and went out there and then get down to the bullpen. And I think it was the fifth inning. Ian Kennedy got into some trouble uh, runners on first and second, nobody out. And they called down and they got Brian Flynn and Moylan going. So lefty, righty, double barrel. Yeah. So I'm like, okay. Next pitch, I think Ian got a double play. So he had runner on third, and they're like, this is last hitter. Flynn, sit down. Moylan, if he doesn't get him, you're going to come get this righty. Ends up, he ends up getting him. So I'm sitting there next in the bullpen on the bench and um, digging through the snack bag looking for a snack because, again, like I hadn't <laughs> ate much coming in that. Oh, I'm I sure. I, like all morning and whatever. So I'm like digging there through the snack bag, and the phone rings. And usually in the bullpen, like when someone's warming up for a guy and the guy gets out of it, they'll usually call down and say, okay, Moylan, you're in the game. So I'm sitting there digging through and the phone rings and I think nothing of it because I'm like, Moylan's in the game. And I grab a, I think it was like one of those stinger wafers. It's like a energy bite or whatever. And I grab it and I go to open it. And right when I go to open it, the bullpen coach goes, Strom, you're in the game. I'm like, oh, what? I throw it down, panic, <laughs> grab my stuff. Get up on the mound, and we're in Arlington's old stadium. And uh, my very first warm up pitch, I threw it out of the bullpen. Like I literally threw it over the over the catcher. I remember Butera was down there, and he he puts his glove up like this, and I throw it, and he just puts it down and looks like it goes over his head. That's like, oh boy, here we go. So, but then then I locked it in, and uh, so it must have been after that must have been the seventh because I came in and as I was running in for my debut, I get halfway through the outfield and it's, well, everyone, please rise for the singing of God bless America. Yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? So now you got to pause awkward guy out in left center, just standing here. But, uh, but yeah, Man, that's it was, a, a full day of hurry up and wait for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was all a blur for sure. So oh my gosh, how many, well, first of all, what was it like actually throwing out that first pitch and, and how did that outing end up going? Yeah. Um, you know, my first, first batter was Mitch Moreland. Uh, oh. He welcomed me to the league with like a 110 mile an hour line drive back over my head for a base hit. <laughs> and then I believe, I believe I threw a wild pitch. He went to second and then I ended up striking out Ryan Rua for the first out. And then I only got three batters, Mitch Moreland, and then Ryan Rue, I struck him out. And then the next guy was, it went righty-righty. And Butera came out because, yeah, he warmed me up and came into the game with me. And then Butera came out to the mound and was like, hey, uh, we're going to pitch around this guy. The whole at-bat's 0-2. And I probably threw the four most perfect fastballs I've ever thrown in my career, just painting them outside by, like, two balls. And the guy never bit. And I walked him, and then they brought Moylan in. Okay. And uh, I believe Moylan gave up a base hit, which scored Moreland, and then he got out of it. So uh, that was, it was, everything was quick. Um, yeah. Like I said, the, the warm up, like the flight, the warming up before the game, the 
warm up to get into the game and then the game it all just it all went by so fast how many text messages did you have after that game <laughs> yeah <laughs> plenty there was there was uh probably probably didn't get back to everybody but uh it was it was definitely an overwhelming day no doubt what do you really think about when you think about your your Kansas City Royals career and especially getting a chance with them yeah, no, I mean, very thankful for that organization. Um, I got, I mean, it was unbelievable to come up in that organization. I actually, after being with three other organizations too, I look at it and it's like, what the Royals do is very similar to what Coach Murray did at Neosha. It was, they want to take a bunch of young men and make them into men. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, they're, they're more worried about the person than they are the ball player especially in the minor leagues. And then it's uh, their, their philosophy is if they can, if they can make men, they'll have good baseball players. And it's, it's a philosophy that I think would work for most. And uh, the Royals did an unbelievable job with it. Um, you know, it was uh, every player always wishes you could play for one team and do your whole career in the one city. Um, but I mean, I'm very, I'm fortunate to, to be a lefty in this league and you know that that usually means you're going to wear quite a few jerseys in your career especially if you're fortunate enough to stick around as long as i have and uh you know i've enjoyed i've enjoyed every stop that i've had so i got no complaints here how do you feel about going most of your career uh before especially getting called up as a starter and then transitioning to reliever and i know you've done some spot starts especially this year for the phillies but you know it seems like a lot of guys go through that transition and I always wonder is there some bitterness or is there this discovery of actually finding out that you enjoyed relieving more than starting what what was that like for you yeah I mean I think it it's all individualized there's some guys that <clears throat> starting's the only only thing they know and they're they're all about their routine and it blows their mind to think like you're gonna ask me to throw 30 pitches Monday and then 20 again on Tuesday like it's just it's not yeah. for some guys um but for me, it's always just been, it's, it's the, it's the competition for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I love starting because I get a, I just get to compete more, but I also love relieving because I get more days to compete. Yeah. So I get to, as a reliever, I get to show up to the yard every day with the chance to compete that night. Whereas a starter, you kind of find yourself those four days you're not pitching. It's like, I, there, I get, I get no adrenaline tonight, but uh, you know, um, I love them both. Uh, I think I can do them both. I don't like to put myself into a, a corner and say I'm a reliever or a starter. I just call myself a pitcher. Um, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's just, it's competition is, is my, is my addiction, I guess. And so the more I get to do it, the happier I am. And obviously as a starter, you get to do it more that day, but as a reliever, you get more days to do it. So now what about your time in San Diego? That's the longest tenure that you've yeah. had in the majors. What do you remember the most about those four years? Uh, yeah, San Diego in for at least a majority of my tenure, there was a lot of rebuilding, um, mm. had a lot of young guys. I remember in 2019, I was in the rotation and I look around at the other four starters and I'm like, I'm the most tenured guy here and I'm not even in arbitration yet. Like, this is crazy. So it's like, I got three rookies with me and a second year guy and then me, a third year guy. It's like, dang, this is, this is a young team. Um, it again, big league baseball is always again an adrenaline rush to me. Yeah. Um, but there's something, <laughs> there's something to your mental when you're constantly just getting, beat up by the the bigger bigger brothers of the national league west and uh sure. you know they've obviously turned it around a couple couple years in san diego but uh yeah most of my tenure was development and rebuilding um but again it was the greatest city in the united states and i mean not a more perfect place to play baseball couldn't agree more i went to college there i love san diego yeah it's beautiful So, you know, going back to this story of going through adversity, especially you, you go through Tommy John, you come back stronger, 
you go through this crazy debut and you establish yourself with the Royals, establish yourself even more with the Padres. You're gaining some momentum in your career. And then 2021, man, that, that had to be a rough year for you, not just physically, but mentally going through those knee issues. Yeah. Um, so that all started in 2020, actually. Um, we had the shutdown. And then when we restarted in June, I believe, the end of June, I think is when we started. Um, it was like the first or second week of that summer camp to start the season. I hyperextended my knee in a conditioning Ooh. drill we were doing and partially tore my patella tendon. Ooh. Um, at that time, they told me I could have surgery then and fix it, or I could pitch on it and fix it in the off season. Um, I opted to throw the whole 2020 season on it with the partial tear and have surgery in the off season. Um, the surgery I had was probably more of like a, a nine to 10 month recovery. Mm. And my stubborn self thought I could do it in seven to eight. Mm. And uh, in 21, I tried to come back in August, I believe it was. And through like four or five innings and I had a osteophyte grow on my chocular groove in my knee. So I essentially had a bone spur growing in my knee and it was in the groove when you straighten your knee um, I would get to about 20 or 30 degrees short of straight and it was just locked. It was like hitting a wall. Like I couldn't straighten my leg. Um, and then I had to, I had to have another surgery there in, uh, September of 21. And, uh, then I got non-tendered by the Padres. Um, rightfully so. I only threw again, four innings that year prior and, um, that was right before the lockout too. So like everyone, it was kind of like unknown what, what I would be like come spring training, but I have an unbelievable team down in Arizona. I work with at, uh, at banner, um, Keith and Keith, they did an unbelievable job with my rehab. And, uh, yeah, I came back out of the, out of the lockout through a bullpen for everybody. Um, actually hit 98 in my bullpen, which I've never wow. done in my life. And, uh, the Boston Red Sox were, gracious enough to give me a contract and pitch for them last year so it, uh, it all worked out um but but yeah it was uh it was definitely a, a bumpy road there for a while until until we figured things out talk to me more about the mental side of that 2021 season and how difficult that was to be sidelined it's it's, it's so weird in the in the business of baseball like the individual part of it and then the team aspect of it when you're not with the team all that stuff um it's just you, for my mental, it's almost better to like, not like, it was really good that I was in Arizona and rehabbing there versus like mm -hmm. being around the game all the time is, is mentally exhausting when you can't do anything, if that makes sense. So yeah, yeah. for, for the rehab process, it's like, I don't know, you see guys all the time and it's, it's the, the mental part is the hardest part and you want to be on the field, but you can't. And so um, just trying to find ways to deal with that. Um, again, baseball cards were kind of a, a way for me to deal with that in a, in a, in a way. Um, I had those, but uh, yeah, there's, there's nothing that, that compares to the, the feeling of competing at the major league level. So um, I would just say the hardest part of all the rehab was the mental side of not being able to compete. So I'm a big believer that when you're forced to pause, right. And just stop yep. the day to day that you've been used to doing for so long. Uh, that's when some of the biggest changes in your life happen for me personally, two different times in my life that I think about that one, when my dad, uh, was on his deathbed from bone cancer. And then the other time really just recently when I had my, my first child and yep. all work is put aside, right? Because those yep. are two major things that happen. And, and I learned so much about myself when I just, got out of being in the day-to-day -day routine. So when you went through either one of these injuries and rehabs, was there anything major or any, you know, epiphany moments that you had just about learning about yourself? Um, you, I, I, I mean, most of it, most of it would be like the biggest epiphany would probably have came in Tommy John of like how mm. much work this is mm. like, so many, I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There are guys that are just naturally gifted and it's not yeah. that they don't need to, or don't do work. It's just, 
there's some guys that can roll out of bed and go three for four and sure there's other guys that can roll out of bed and throw seven innings and punch out 10 like it, it's it's so individualized and I think that was the biggest thing I had for me was like okay I look around the room and it's I'm not I'm not here on natural ability I'm here on work so mm. I I have to do it every day I have to I have to outwork the 17 18 year old kid that's coming for my job I just I gotta I gotta work and so that was the biggest thing for me was learning what it's going to take to stay on that field and to be elite on that field. I want to go back to the, the chance that the Red Sox gave you, like you said, I mean, you yeah. know, you threw 98 in the bullpen. So I think they <laughs> just about any team wants a lefty yeah. throw 98, yeah. but yeah. you know, you weren't signed until mid March. Was there a lot of nerves of like, am I even going to play this season? Um, Not really just because okay. of uh, the, the, the lockout. Um, hmm. the, that was, that was why the sign, I mean, I really, I signed only four days after the lockout was lifted three. I mean, we came to an agreement two days after, and then okay. I flew out on the third day and signed my contract that night. So it wasn't, I, there was never, a, I wouldn't say a worry, but um, yeah. There was other factors I mean, going into that. Yeah, and I knew I knew where I was rehab wise, where like other teams might have like again they couldn't talk to us all off season or anything, so there might have been some doubts of like where I was in the rehab process. But again, I I knew the work I had put in, I knew how I was feeling, and again, all I needed was an opportunity to show what I had, and yeah. I mean I felt like I did that pretty well the day after the lockout for I think there was eighteen or nineteen teams there and. Um, yeah, it, I created a bidding war and it was all history from there. Yeah. You benefit from that. Well, and yeah. speaking of benefiting, I mean, you know, you prove yourself with the Red Sox that you're healthy, that you're back to it and you're rewarded with your biggest contract to date, two years, $15 yeah. million with the Phillies. What was that day like? Yeah. Um, it's surreal still to this day, even to mm. think about it. Um, yeah, just a 21st rounder from West Fargo, North Dakota. And again, it's just, it's all, it's all hard work. That's all I can say. Um, I mean, it was, yeah, I, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> Speechless. Yeah. The phone, the phone call to my parents was probably the the best part. So that's all I got. What did they say? Exactly what I'm saying right now. <laughs> they, had, they had nothing to say. Jaws dropped. Um, yeah, um, it was again surreal. Still is, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, it's not the biggest one of my career. Let's just there say that. So. Keep on going. I love yep. it, Matt. So, with the Phillies, you're in the bullpen with one of the best pitchers oh, yeah. of our time with Craig Kimbrell. Um, talk about Kimbrell for a second and what it's like being around him. Um, what he's like, and also is, is there anything that goes into his preparation that you've learned from? Uh, consistency. Um, mm. he, he is first and foremost, he's one of the most humble, humble teammates I've ever had for cool. a guy to have 400 saves. And I think there's only been eight or seven people with more saves than him in the history of our game. So, um, yeah, his his consistency, his work ethic, um, his I mean his graciousness. Um, he spoils the hell out of us in the bullpen. Um, he's an unbelievable human. Uh, what do you What do you mean by that? Spoils you? Oh, I mean, just his bullpen energy brings us on. Um, he's bought us some nice gifts. Uh, he's a he's he's very 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 kind to us all. Um, That's awesome. You know. Uh, yeah, and uh, just again, he's he's an unbelievable role model for our, for younger guys, and to see to see somebody who's accomplished so much in our game to still go about his business the way he does each and every day, as if tonight's going to be his first save in the big leagues. It's just it's unbelievable to watch. I got a laundry list of good things to say about that guy, and um, not a single bad thing to say. Um, That's cool. You know, growing up watching him play, I thought. Kimbrel was one of the meanest, meanest dudes on earth watching him pitch. Right. Like you'd think you 
you're scared to talk to them or something, but once you meet them, it's like, dang, you're one of the nicest normal dudes I've ever met. And it's, again, it's, it's cool to see that switch once that bullpen phone rings and Hey, Kimmy, you're in the game. And it's, it's a, it's a different it's, person that uh, toes that rubber and it's, it's, it's fun to watch. Especially when he had that man bun going, man. I, I thought he oh, yeah. looked like a mean dude out there. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He still got it going. His, for me, it was when he had his big beard. Oh he yeah. Just, he, he pulls his hat down just so low and his, his eyes never come up and it's, yeah. it's an intimidating look on that mound. You so, given any uh, tips on how to continue to grow out those luscious locks? Uh, him, uh, he, he was giving me the tips in spring. He, uh, showed me some hair, some, some good hair oil to keep the frizziness down and and all that. So, uh, I don't, I don't think, uh, I got many tips for a hall of famer like him. That's awesome. Is there any, uh, you, you mentioned some bullpen dinners. Uh, is, is there any like dinner stories that you have, uh, that you would be allowed to share on? (laughs) on on this the uh yeah so this was kind of funny the very first uh bullpen dinner we went on I guess it wasn't the first it was the first one I went on because I wasn't in the bullpen to start the year but uh we were in we were playing Oakland we were in San Francisco Craig set it up he asked us what we wanted some of the guys wanted sushi so found a sushi place that would take the 13 reservation or whatever and uh we show up there and we're looking at the menu and Craig's like, uh, we'll start with some, uh, some of the Toro and blah, blah, blah. And this guy, the, the waiter's like, uh, it's a set menu. That's just the menu. It is what it is. And like, if you guys want to start, we can start. And yeah. we're all like, oh, all right. And like, nobody <laughs> knew. And the very first dish that came out was like this tofu miso, miso soup with okay. sea urchin on it. Oh, and, God. uh, but the, it, like, a normal miso soup has like little pieces of tofu. This was like a four ounce wad of tofu <laughs> like, oh and like a splash of miso on it with sea urchin. I don't know if you've ever had sea urchin, but no, that is one of my least favorite sushi menu that, options. It's it the first thing good. we eat. Oh no. And uh, <laughs> we got Covey, Covey sitting there and it's not that Covey's a picky eater, but Covey's one of the guys that he'll smell everything before he eats it kind of thing, like inspect it, make sure it's okay. And we're all like, they put this in front of us and we're all like, all 12 of us look at each other like, what are we getting into? Like, what is this? Covey and I, we had a, we had to choke down that tofu uh, sea urchin to start off the night. Oh, but after, gosh. after that, it was smooth sailing. It was pretty there you good. Go. So cool. But uh, nothing, nothing off the wall, but it was, it was just funny. Well, Matt, I got to ask one uh, question before we get into our lightning round here, yeah. you know, my, my claim to fame is that I have, uh, something in common with you and Bryce Harper, which is that we all met at the Juco world series in grand junction, yeah. Colorado. Uh, has it ever come up in conversation with you now being a teammate of Bryce, just, uh, reflecting back on your experience over there? Yeah. And, uh, spring training, actually, I remember asking her about it of, uh, like, or it wasn't spring training. It was actually during the the college world series. We were watching it on TV and just made a couple comments about how, like we thought Rosenblatt was a better setup for the college world series. It was like just a better atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. And uh, then I just asked Harp, I was like, you remember the college world series? And he's like, yeah, dude. He's like, the atmosphere was great. And I mean, we, we just had a little, little conversation about how grand junction, like that whole community just comes together for that that event and it's kind of their their big event there and how i mean we go from playing in front of 800 fans in a junior college regular game to i don't even know what it was when we were there like times 10,000 or whatever 10,000 yeah it was crazy so um yeah just uh it's again that was that's probably one of my one of my highlights in my baseball career is that is that juco world series my first juco world series was harper's and That's that sick. was insane, you know, 17 years old. And, you know, we all knew he was going to be the number one pick a week later. And yep. I mean, he, he didn't have bodyguards, but he might as well have had bodyguards following him everywhere. Yeah. Probably was, needed them. Yeah, probably. Uh, awesome. Well, Matt, uh, we are getting to the end here and it's time for yeah. our rapid fire segment, our 27th out. You ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. Okay. 
Each question I ask, just first thing that comes to mind, under 10 seconds, here we go. Uh, one ritual that you uh, do that only your teammates know about. Um, I don't know. I mean, put my phone away probably an hour before the game. Guys are always <laughs> like, they'll ask me something and like, hey, will you look it up? And I'm like, no, my phone's away. Sorry. So there you go. <laughs> it's just, Check. I'm a Check big, big lock-in guy. Yeah. Good. Who's the one guy that you hate facing? Um, it was probably Daniel Murphy, but he's not not in the league anymore. In the league right now, I'd probably say uh, Freddie Freeman's a tough out. Even yeah. though he's a lefty, he's just he's an unbelievable hitter, and he's a tough out. Absolutely. Favorite player of all time? Uh, favorite player of all time, Darren Urstead. Love it. How about favorite player now? Favorite and you player can't say now? yourself. <laughs> can't say myself favorite player now um it's got to be jt real muto i mean the guy is an unbelievable athlete catches more games than anyone and steals bags um and can play an unbelievable round of golf he's a he's a he's elite athlete i love it uh is he your favorite teammate of all time or do you have a favorite teammate of all time favorite teammate of all time would definitely be it's got to be probably rich hill um, oh, he's nice. Just, he's, he's an unbelievable dude. Um, Eric Hosmer's up there as well. Sweet. Um, you know, it's uh, those those two guys are great teammates. My best friend in all of baseball is definitely Tim Hill, though. Love it. Who is uh, maybe a player that you emulated growing up or at any point in your career? Uh, Cliff Lee. Okay. Love it. Yep. Yep. Do you have a favorite coach? Probably my dad. Very cool. Any reason why? Dad, you know, yeah. it's pretty, pretty cool to be coached by your dad. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely the reason uh, baseball become a passion for me. Very cool. Uh, what's your favorite non-home stadium to visit? Uh, non-home stadium to visit. Uh, that's two different questions, I guess. The non Non-home stadium to visit would probably be um, Petco, but my favorite mound, I guess it's not home anymore, right? So, like, yeah, works. And then my favorite mound to pitch on is is at the Trop. Um, okay. There's something about that mound that I feel like you could put Babe Ruth in the box and I can get him out. Wow, I like it. So. If a movie was made about you, Matt, who would you like to play the lead character? Matthew McConaughey. Oh, I like it. He's going to have to grow the hair out, but I can see the resemblance. Yeah, yeah you can do it. You can do it. I like it. Uh, if any of your teammates were to ask, or if I were to ask any of your teammates just one adjective to describe Matt, what would they say? Ooh, um, probably like competitive or fiery. Cool. Too. And if you were to go back to 12-year-old Matt, if you had the chance today to do that, what is the one thing that you would tell them? Believe in your dreams. That's it. Let's Just go. Keep going. Okay, Matt. The final pitch question. What's the number one card that you'd like to pull or, or the number one box maybe that you haven't opened yet that you want to open? I would really like to open a Mike Trout rookie box. Um, actually back in 2020, um, Gordon Beckham, who's actually on the box, found out I was a card guy, and he was like, hey, he's like, I have some boxes that I'm on. Do you want one? He's like, my grandma bought the all of them from the store when she went the day I was on them or something. And I looked at him, and I was like, you have no idea what you have, do you? He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, bro, those boxes are probably like three to four grand at the time, I told him. Oh my he's, like, he's like, no, they were just the, like, the hobby boxes my grandma bought at the store for like $79 a piece. I was like, yeah, I know, but those are Mike Trout's rookie cards. And if the box is still sealed, they keep going up in value. And I think today they're almost, they're, they're over 10 grand a box now. Wow. So he, he tried to give me one and I was like, no, I was like, you put those in a lock box for your kids and yeah. don't tell them, don't tell them you have them. And when they graduate and they're 18, you can pull them out and show them what they got. But I was That's like, cool. don't, yeah, don't give those away. 
that is a cool story. Great way to end this. Matt, uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. Congrats and, and very proud of the success that I've seen you elevate into and keep on going, man. Keep on trucking along and hopefully uh, you and the Phillies go far this year. Right on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, go check out Matt's YouTube channel, Strom Stadium Pools. And next week, we have Rachel Balkovic on the show. Who's Rachel Balkovic? Well, she is the first minor league coach manager who is a female. That's right, a female in, in the game. And, and what I really just want to encourage you as you go to listen to this next one next week, again, every Wednesday, we're dropping a new episode. Do not bring all of those preconceptions to the table of like women should not be managing. They didn't play the sport, yada, yada. Just listen to the story. The story is one of breaking barriers. It's one that I think is going to be very inspirational for a lot of people. If it's not for you, okay, that's fine. Guess what? We've got other people coming up that you're going to love on the show. But Rachel, just, just give it a chance. Give Rachel the chance. Give her the time to be able to hear her story and then make a decision on where you're at on everything. Then also please subscribe and review and share with three baseball friends of yours. I know that if you're a baseball fan, you have other baseball fan friends, go share this podcast, this YouTube channel with them. And if you know any current or former MLB guys, I would love to have them on my show. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Kyle at setupman.net. That's going to do it for this week on the setup man. For now, I'm going to go put my arm on ice. We'll see you again.